Every doctor we saw, I said, hey, we visited an island off Massachusetts, which was the number two spot for Lyme disease. None of the doctors tested me. And then when they did test me, they ignored the results. So it was just, what was wrong? It was just outrageous. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, and today we're going to discuss an uncomfortable, and some would even say creepy, topic, ticks. Their ever-expanding population and huge rise of tick-borne diseases, especially Lyme disease, is a cause of urgent concern for all of us, not just for those living in the Northeast. We have three experts with us today going to be explaining the scale of the problem, why Lyme testing and treatment are so inadequate, and what we can do about it. Brian Owens, a Canadian science journalist, his recent book, Lyme Disease in Canada, came out last summer. Chris Newby is a science writer, author of Bitten, and senior producer of the documentary, Under the Skin. And finally, Dr. Nev Zubchevic is a Harvard-trained physician specializing in physical medicine and rehab, She's currently the CMO of Invisible International, which is a nonprofit working to alleviate suffering caused by invisible disease. So, Brian, let's uh, go up to you there in Canada. You learned a lot, I imagine, about this disease while you were writing the book. Did anything really surprise you other than the fact that your dog could get a vaccine and you couldn't? One of the things that really surprised me was kind of how quickly it was moving, I guess, in Canada. For years, we were told that there was only one tiny little part in southern Ontario, and that was the only place that there were ticks. It was the only endemic population that had that had Lyme. But now we know it's, it's across most of eastern Canada. It's, it's in western Canada up the west coast. Um, and it's moving really quickly, uh, a lot of it driven by climate change. Um, the, the range of the ticks is expanding by something like 30 kilometers north every year. And the, I guess the Lyme infected ticks are following close behind that kind of leading edge. So that was really the, the kind of the first thing that, that got me was that the scale of the problem was, was a lot bigger than we uh, had heard here in Canada before. Um, and then, like you said, the obviously the situation, the vaccines, it was, wasn't something I was aware of before I started researching the book, just how there, there had been a vaccine and then it just kind of went away. Just to kind of fast track through that story. So GlaxoSmithKline developed this in the 1990s, and it did get distributed a little bit in Canada and North America. And then what happened? The anti-MMR people at the time um, went, took lawsuits straight against the pharmaceutical company, and it wasn't lucrative or feasible for them to continue producing it. Is that right? Yeah, the, the vaccine was released in kind of the late 1990s, early 2000s. It was fairly successful, but there, it had some drawbacks. It was a, a three-dose series, which as we're seeing with uh, COVID vaccines, you know, the more doses are in a series, the sort of harder it is to get people to do it or to complete it. Uh, it wasn't added to sort of a routine vaccination schedule. It wasn't available for children. And then it also had this problem of coming out right around the time that the sort of anti-vax movement was taking off with, with the uh, thoroughly debunked now uh, links between MMR and autism. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of general feeling of, of uh, anti-vax uh, or anti-vax feelings was sort of being stirred up. And there was, you know, there was a potential because uh, there had been a lot of reports, sort of anecdotal reports of arthritis after the vaccine, which was a a potential problem given that arthritis is one of the things that, that Lyme disease causes. That was something that needs to be looked at. 
Um, but what ended up happening is that, again, the vaccine wasn't added to this list of sort of protected vaccines that uh, where the companies are, are kind of pay a little tax and then they're protected against lawsuits. So all these kind of lawsuits started coming in and GSK just decided it's not getting the take up we wanted and we're having all these kind of vexatious lawsuits. Um, so they just said, well, forget it. It's, it's as far as I know, the only successful vaccine that was voluntarily withdrawn from the market just because they sort of couldn't be bothered to deal with it. Uh, what do you think in Canada is the next step in terms of public awareness? And what's the next stage, to your knowledge, about the French vaccine? Well, yeah, so there is another vaccine that's being developed now. It's, it's, uh, they've done a few things, kind of tweaks to try and deal with some of the concerns around potential side effects. They are hoping to release it in the next couple of years. Um, one of the things about this is it takes a long time to develop a Lyme disease vaccine because you need to do your clinical trials over the course of you know two, three, four years because you need at least kind of two life cycles of ticks to, to, to cycle through or two, see, two Lyme seasons to get through. Um, so we can't see the sort of speed we've seen with the COVID vaccines. You just don't get, there aren't enough people being infected each year to get the statistical power uh, to do it really quickly. Um, so they're hoping, I, I believe around 2024, they'd like to uh, release that. And uh, they're looking to release it in Europe, uh, North America, uh, Canada and US, which should give it a, a broader market um, for them to go that even if they have some pushback, they'll have other places they can sell it as well. And just generally, are people worried about this in Canada? Uh, a lot of people are, yeah. I mean, I, I have several friends who've, who've uh, had Lyme disease and went through, uh, you know, the sort of the usual thing of struggling to get a proper diagnosis. It's a, a smaller, I guess, sort of community of Lyme patients in Canada than in the US, but they're just as vocal. There's, there's uh, you know, quite a few um, politicians who are taking this quite seriously. Uh, Canada does have a national strategy now to deal with it, although that is, of course, you know, the implementation of that is, is always being kind of argued about a little bit. Generally, it's, you know, for the parts of Canada where most people live, which is the southern part, it is a problem and, and more and more people are sort of becoming aware of that problem and, and taking the steps that they need to to protect themselves. And of course, uh, the financial aspect would be different for people in Canada because there's national health. Yeah, well, so you, if you do get a, a, an official diagnosis, then you're fine, you'll get the, the, the treatment that's available. Um, but a lot of Canadians, because there is this trouble with, uh, with getting the diagnosis, end up paying a lot out of pocket to go to either naturopaths or often will travel to the United States to, to doctors and pay out of pocket in the United States to get prescriptions there that doctors in Canada either can't or are unwilling to, to give them. So it sounds like they're not dealing with it that well. That would certainly be uh, the case that, that a lot of Lyme patients would make. Yeah. So welcome. We're going over to Chris now. Chris, in addition to producing the documentary Under the Skin, which really opened the can of worms for a lot of people to see the scale of the problem, you and your husband both got Lyme at the same time. Great difficulty in getting diagnosed, obtaining the proper treatment. And like many long-term sufferers in the film, you also were accused of having these psychosomatic symptoms, which these poor, long-suffering people often end up with. So could you just give us kind of a, a synopsis of your story? When my husband and I were in our early 40s, we took a family vacation to Martha's Vineyard. We were there about a week. And when we got back to California, my husband and I were sicker than we'd ever been before. Our kids didn't get it. And that started this long process. We had done tick checks, but somehow we had gotten bitten by a chick, but we didn't know it. it but we went into the medical system. We were told we had very intense flu-like symptoms. 
we went to the doctor and said, oh, it's a virus, go away. We came back in less than a week and said, no, we are really, really sick. I mean, we could barely climb up the stairs to go to bed at night. And they said, no, we think it's a virus, but hey, we'll let you see the infectious disease doctors. And in the US system, the specialists are hard to get into. So we went to specialists after specialists. And in a year, we saw 10 doctors and we ended up spending about $60,000. And it took a year to get diagnosed with two tick-borne diseases. Finally, we got to the academic medical center near my house and they finally tested us for Lyme disease. I came up positive and they said, well, that test uh, is a really bad test. We're going to ignore it. And so then I went home and read about, well, Lyme disease. I mean, we'd been tested for maybe 20 diseases and this is the first positive. And I learned that they should have tested us for a second, a second time. So I made them do that and it came up positive again. And they said, you know, we don't think it's Lyme disease. It would be like winning the lottery for you both to get it. The last doctor we'd been to thought that it was a psychosomatic couples thing where we were making up all these symptoms. So 10 months into the disease, we had like chronic fatigue symptoms like Alzheimer's, like early onset dementia, pains would move around. We had irritable bowel syndrome, all those that would change every day. And he thought I was a hypochondriac and I was trying to get attention from my husband and he was having empathy pain. So it was just outrageous. Every doctor we saw, I'm an engineer, so I document everything. I said, hey, we visited an island off Massachusetts, which was the number two spot for Lyme disease. And none of the doctors till the academic medical system tested me. And then when they did test me, they ignored the results. So it was just, what was wrong? We were fired by the last set of infectious disease doctors and I went on Google and we found a Lyme specialist and she didn't take insurance, but once we were under her care, we got better slowly. So a year undiagnosed, and then it was almost five years before we were totally symptom-free. Wow, that's quite harrowing. So you, you typify a lot of people, that I say, that must affect the numbers that, that are documented of having Lyme. I mean, the CDC have a quite a low part figure of real infections. And then they also say these people were treated, right? So they say 500,000 or close to it a year. That's a lot of people, new cases per year. But then they'll say, but maybe only 35,000 people actually had the disease. And then you've got also on your site saying 36% of the sufferers show long Lyme symptoms six months after the initial treatment, a third of them. So I think you said your husband was one of those that had, when he got infected with COVID, he found that he had a flare up of a lot of his old problems that he'd had. Is that right? With Lyme? Yeah, he's had a couple of relapses and then he got long COVID. So I, it's hard to say he refuses to test for Lyme because he says the tests are just so worthless. I mean, everybody agrees if you treat it early on, uh, you can cure it with two to four weeks of antibiotics. But the problem is the test doesn't work in the first month. So you have all these people going forward, having these chronic symptoms and the major medical society, the infectious disease society says you can't have, even if you are treated for that, the symptoms go away and those same symptoms come back. You can't have any more antibiotics because 
chronic Lyme doesn't exist. We think there's no more organisms in your body and it's just an autoimmune condition where your body's attacking itself or it's debris from killing off those organisms. So it creates this catch 22 for patients where it takes like us a year to get diagnosed and we had multiple tick-borne diseases. And then when you do have the chronic symptoms, they won't treat you. So it creates a vacuum and, and people have to seek care outside of the insurance companies. It's really expensive. People go bankrupt. When one of the people in the couples has it and the other one doesn't, they don't understand because you, you can't see the symptoms. It's an invisible mm. disease and people lose their jobs. They have to drop out of college. I think that societal and the economic impacts of this disease are just incalculable because we can't track it right now. We don't have code. Well, January 1, now we have a code for chronic Lyme, but we didn't before January 1. So that would mean it encompasses more types of conditions. Right. Before the WHO on January 1 enacted these new codes, there was only acute Lyme and arthritis and neuropathy, numbness. And it ignored some of the more serious manifestations of Lyme disease, like heart disease, eye problems, Mm -hmm. the gut problems, uh, congenital Lyme, passing it to unborn children. So now at least we can track it and the data researchers can calculate the burden of the disease to society and then go back to Congress and say, hey, you need to fund this disease. Before we talk about that, because that's an important one and why it's so hard to test and and why it's so hard to treat um, with Dr. Nev, um, perhaps we could just watch a a clip off the documentary. If you think about how many people are probably infected, it's scary. How many people could actually be very, very sick? Six times the number of HIV cases. 50% higher than the number of breast cancer cases. It's a huge problem. I thought I would either die or live with this pain forever. It was almost like you have your life taken away from you. This had tremendous effect on my wife and on my children, and this family is no more. We didn't really know what we were getting into. You just feel like you're in the water and it's up to your head. It's known as Lyme disease. Thousands suffer from it. La maladie de Lyme, elle touche entre 10,000 personnes en France chaque année. Die Zahl gefährlicher Borreliose-Erkrankungen ist deutlich gestiegen. A man has died, but yet again, authorities refuse to acknowledge... You're listening to Cambridge Forum's discussion of Tick, Tick and More Ticks with Brian Owens, author of Lyme Disease in Canada, Chris Newby, senior producer of Under the Skin and author of Bitten, and Dr. Nev Zubchevich. CMO of Invisible International. Okay, I'd like to um, invite Dr. Nev to the conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you're a Harvard-trained physician, and you're the chief medical officer of Invisible International, which is a nonprofit that tries to alleviate the sufferings caused by these invisible diseases, and Lyme being one of them. Why is it, first of all, it's so damn hard to test for this thing? Why does it elude us in a way that we were able to get a test for the COVID virus pretty rapidly? So one of the main reasons why this test was developed or the reason why this test was developed was for surveillance. This test was never meant to be diagnostic test actually. And so when this was developed decades ago, folks were really supposed to be using it for surveillance only, but because there was nothing else, 
uh, we started using the test for diagnostic uh, purposes. And really, the problem with this test is that there isn't a worldwide standard. So when you're tested in China versus in Europe or in the United States, the test will be interpreted differently. So uh, Chinese papers suggest that one of the Western blot Lyme-specific bands is sufficient for you to diagnose somebody. Uh, whereas in the US, uh, there's an arbitrary number of five, completely chosen arbitrarily. There's no reason why it should be five. In Europe, it's two or three. Um, so depends on your luck where you're tested, depends on your luck whether your physician recognizes that this is a surveillance test that has nothing to do with uh, really good science that's specifically honed in on diagnostics of humans. And so, um, and also the lack of funding, because we really were not and still are not keeping track of the majority of uh, tick-borne illnesses. Uh, so we don't count the numbers of anaplasmosis or Ehrlichia babesia across the states. We don't know what the incidence is. Uh, we're only really a partially tracking line for those states that are funded uh, to do better surveillance uh, because of lack of funding. So uh, it's kind of like a catch-22. You have to start tracking it to then alert the public, hey, this is a big issue. We should be having better tests. And then the NIH would invest more money into sponsoring diagnostic labs to develop a better test. And, and then that better test can be used to diagnose people to then keep track of them. So I think that really the only answer for us uh, to move quicker in this is for the NIH to designate a larger bucket of finances to support better diagnostics so we can diagnose people better. Yeah, that would seem to me pretty key because um, you can't lobby for something if people are saying it doesn't exist. Uh, it's very difficult to put a case together. The people you know, ma manifest so many different symptoms. Some doctors say that they're not symptoms at all and it's psychosomatic. So you're in this terrible loop and then with uh, Chris's case, Chris didn't get a diagnosis till quite late, you know, so you could actually have it for a couple of years before you even know that you've got it. Yeah, uh, I would say uh, there's some really good uh, data on Lyme, LymeDisease.org that shows we were the lucky ones, you know, because we got treated under a year. So there was chances, a chance that we could get back to normal. Uh, but the people who are misdiagnosed for, you know, two, three, four years, it's harder for them. Okay, um, we've just pulled up this research that Yale is doing. It's using some of the technology, the uh, messenger RNA that was used to develop the COVID uh, vaccine, and it zones in on the tick saliva rather than the disease. Is that right? That's right. Um, actually, there was quite promising research uh, coming out from Yale even um, in 2009 by Dr. Errol Fickrig, who had... Uh, really was interested in obliterating all uh, infections that a tick can, uh, can give somebody because having just a Lyme vaccine kind of gives you a false sense of security and uh, that, you know, you could go hiking now and you won't be affected, but there's still, um, you know, over 20 organisms that could create potentially a chronic illness and a devastating illness in a patient. So really targeting um, all of them together is the holy, is a holy grail of this, um, you know, uh, vaccine potential that we have uh, to develop as a society. So uh, Errol Fikrig uh, and his colleagues at Yale have most recently published uh, a really great uh, potential new technology that is 
uh, utilizing mRNA to address the tick saliva proteins. And with that, uh, prevent um, uh, organisms of any kind of entering the mammalian species. So that's vaccinated. So um, in my opinion, uh, I would love to see that that's where the funding from NIH and Big Pharma goes, because uh, receiving a vaccine like that would really uh, obliterate a lot of our concerns from tick-borne disease as a whole. Of course, my little idea was to create some kind of electronic device, like a wand, that you could wave over your body that would beep if there was a tick on you instantly so that that would be like this fail safe thing that when you come home from a walk you can do that straight away on your kids and you know because sometimes you don't see these things or they drop off and they've bitten you so let's go to that let's talk about why there's such an increase a in the numbers and b in the spread of this and what are the key components uh in causing that I know climate change has definitely had something to do with it because I was reading that we now have ticks in parts of California that they never had ticks before. And also lack of habitat. We encroach on habitat. The deer populations increase. They're all hoarded together. And then, you know, you go out in the garden, you're not hiking, you're just gardening. And you don't think you have to put the same kind of, you know, precautions in place as you do when you go hiking in the woods. But in fact, What would you say to that, Dr. Nev? (laughs) So I think as a society, because, you know, diagnostics, it's going to take time, um, treatment strategies, uh, you know, it's going to take time to really validate protocols. Uh, But prevention is something we can do today. And as you said, you know, I wish I wish there was a wand that could tell you, but um, there isn't one yet. However, we could spray our clothes with permethrin before we go on a hike. Um, and when you spray it with permethrin, then you secure that a tick will not attach to your clothing or your shoes. That's very easy and very inexpensive to do. You know, for $15, you can get a spray bottle, take your clothes and your boots outside, spray down, and uh, voila, you know, you have removed one big uh, potential, uh, you know, risk factor of the tick attaching to your clothes or your boots and you're bringing it to your house or on your skin. Um, second thing that has actually, there's a research study on this, and it was uh, a teenager who had tried uh, this, and, and uh, it was amazing, but then studies were also done to just put your clothes in the dryer and fry the ticks, you know? So after a hike, you undress, you put everything in the dryer before you put it in the washer on high heat, and that will desiccate the tick. Um, so that's another great strategy, and you can reuse that clothing next time, and you know that it's been tick-free. Also, doing a tick check every time you're gardening, you're outdoors, you're wearing your permethrin clothing, but when you're taking it off, potentially, you know, one could drop into your hairline or somewhere, and they're so small. I mean, they can fit into the D of the dime, right? Um, and so you want to really go get in a hot shower, feel around your skin, even put some conditioner on your fingers and just kind of go all over your body, all the crevices where ticks like to hide. And then if you do end up finding a tick that's attached to you, the chances are you caught it early and it's had less chance to transmit disease. Second, you can take it and send it out for testing and to see if the tick was carrying any illness. And third, you can report it to your physician. So all those ways are something we can all start doing today to really uh, help the public. And then Last, but probably the most important thing we could do is uh, really advocate for more funding for our local departments of health who could potentially with more funding be putting up 
signs in parks and by rivers and areas where people tend to sit on the grass to warn people that this is where Lyme could be acquired and to just say, hey, be careful, ticks are here, kind of like what you see in Cambridge Parks where it says mosquitoes could be here because we know West Nile virus is spreadable, um, you know, uh, and this way you also warn people about ticks. So half of the battle would, would be just to really hone in on prevention at this time while we're working on the other things. So when you go into a park in Paris, there's um, a sign that basically prepared, says, check your kids for ticks and don't sit in the grass, right? Which right. I don't think I've ever seen that here. I mean, I don't know if anybody else has, but I've never seen anything, signs for ticks. I think somebody said in New Hampshire, they once saw a sign in the woods saying, beware of ticks. But that was the end of it. It didn't give you any advice. So these, uh, these little placards in Paris, do they actually suggest some things? To be aware that there's sticks and, and Lyme disease, you know, and I think uh, that alone, you know, will prevent a lot of people from acquiring it because they will avoid sitting in the grass. You mentioned dropping the tick into your doctor's office. This is something else nobody else is doing. I, I know people that have had tick bites and they take the tick off and that's it. They flush it down so the loop. Putting little. a tick in the zipper bag and, you know, in your freezer, and then you can take a picture of it, but also you can mail that tick off for testing. You know, they test the tick for uh, Lyme and other co-infections. Unfortunately, there's a relapsing fever Borrelia called Borrelia miyamotoi in the United States and also another strain called Borrelia hermsii, for which we don't actually test. So you could be having Lyme-like symptoms and you're negative on the Lyme test, but no physician should ever say to their patient, you don't have Lyme disease because we don't have tests for these relapsing fever Borrelia strains, which live in the bellies of the ticks in Massachusetts. I mean, we know Borrelia miyamotoi is there and California is actually the predominant strain. So if you uh, don't have a test for it or you're not testing for it, then how will you ever know if your patient has it? So, you know, I was a co-director of the, Dean Center for Tick-Borne Illness at Spalding Rehab Hospital in Boston for uh, nearly five years. And, you know, I never told my patients, you don't have Lyme, because I don't know, because the testing is very inadequate. It just tests for one out of 52 strains of Borrelia. So if you look at the taxonomy of the bacterial species, there's 52 of them. And we only test for one, and we test poorly by uh, using a surveillance test. This is why clinicians should be educated to recognize a cluster of mixed symptoms as a potential tick-borne illness, especially in somebody who's healthy otherwise, and there's nothing else going on, but they went on a hike or they were gardening. Most of my patients, if not all of them, that I saw hundreds of them while I was working at Spalding were really healthy, active individuals before getting a tick-borne illness. Nobody was a lazy person. And so it's very detrimental when you walk in as a patient to a physician's office with like a myriad of symptoms from a headache, joint pain, numbness and tingling, anxiety, depression. And you, you're trying to tell all these symptoms, but doc only has 15 minutes to listen to you because they're limited by insurance reimbursement. The doc doesn't really have time to dive into all of these things. And so the easiest thing is to put it like a syndrome and say, well, you probably have fibromyalgia, anxiety, depression, and then by the time the patient actually gets diagnosed by a very early, if it's treated early, curable disease, and all those symptoms go away, it's like a miracle. And so 
most of my patients who I've treated even with late tick-borne illness improved uh, and got their life back. So I think we need to be really looking at clinical diagnosis. We, uh, while I was at, you know, working at a Dean Center, I collaborated with the folks at Johns Hopkins in Columbia to develop the first academic validated questionnaire for Lyme disease. Um, so it's called the General Symptom Questionnaire of 30 Symptoms. So this makes it easy for a physician to just give the patient the symptom scale and they could, because it's validated for Lyme specifically, you could actually see what the patient circles and if they score high, then it allows you to, you know, have a clinical diagnosis for this patient, give them a chance for treatment and see if they improve. So there is hope on the horizon. We don't want to leave you in a state of panic and fear about this. So I want to thank Chris Newby, Brian Owens, and Dr. Nev Zubchevich. Cambridge Forum is made possible by generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, the Mass Cultural Council. You'll find a podcast of this program and many other forums, cambridgeforum.org. And I just want to thank everybody for joining us. See you all soon. <laughs>